0: Say, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co hosts, Alex
1: Lawson. Hi, Amber. And Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex.
2: Uh, we got just a banner show, all kinds of interesting news to talk about, so much so that we didn't even have room in the show. And I just wanted to mention uh, the what was sort of one of the biggest legal stories from earlier in the week. That was a Florida judge striking down. The CDC's mask mandate for public transit. This obviously this percolated through the internet. I'm sure everyone who's listening probably heard about it by now. Uh, our coverage was quite good. Our senior transportation reporter Linda Chim wrote about um, the the judge sort of striking that down on the on the sort of question of the CDC not having the authority to issue a mandate like that. For a day or so, it was kind of up in the air about whether they would appeal. Um, because it was scheduled to expire in a couple weeks anyway.
0: I was convinced they would just let that lie and wouldn't uh, risk taking it up and maybe losing again. But I was very wrong.
2: Yeah, it looked like sort of like a policy that might have been on its way out and then a court just kind of like did the formalities. But late yesterday, Wednesday, the Biden administration actually did appeal it. So if that... um, sort of takes hold in earnest at the at the appeal stage. We'll definitely get back into it, but definitely check out Linda's story there. She wrote about some of the, you know, what's left in place with this mishmash of yeah. now state and local uh, mask requirements for transit and some other things. It's obviously still an issue here in New York uh, and in New Jersey, Amber. Um, but uh, yeah, d- definitely check that stuff out. I thought Linda did a, did a nice job with that.
0: Yeah, she definitely did. Um, One other thing I wanted to do before we get into the meat of the news we want to talk about today is give a little preview of our main segment. We talked to Amanda Ottaway. She's on the Employment Authority team here at Law360. And she talks about a case that got a lot of headlines about a company losing and having to pay $450,000 to an employee after they threw him a birthday party and it caused panic attacks and some other problems. The facts of the case are. So novel that it seems almost a little silly. But when you really dig into it, it kind of opens up this conversation about how to handle mental health issues in the workplace. So we had a great talk with her about that. But before we get to that story from Amanda, we do have a bunch of other news to go through, some of it pretty big. And I know, Alex, you have our first story.
2: Yeah, we got a um we got a pretty shocking development in the saga of endopharmaceuticals, which we've talked about on the show before you don't remember, this is the they're a drug maker that has really taken it on the chin in a bunch of different legal challenges over uh, its failure to disclose and hand over documents in litigation over its role in the opioid crisis. So they have been reprimanded for not being transparent enough uh, and handing over documents that they're supposed to to the court. Their lawyers have been reprimanded for this. It's a whole the whole saga. We've talked about it before. The company got sort of knocked down a peg again for this in February by a Tennessee judge. But what we're talking about this week is that that decision was actually overturned when an appeals court in Tennessee ruled that the judge's comments about the case on Facebook and to Law 360 gave the impression that he was biased against the company. So it really threw a curveball into this uh, already pretty interesting case.
0: It's not every day we are part of the story, but I definitely want to unpack all that. (laughs) I know we've talked about Endo and sort of this discovery shenanigans, if you will, a couple of Mm -hmm. times on the show, but catch everybody up because it's maybe been a while or uh, can be confusing. Let's let's do a little background to how we got here.
2: Yeah, so we did two shows last fall that go deep into detail about the endo cases, and it's a very thick fact pattern. So if you want to get into that, those are episodes number 217 and 221. Um, I was quite proud of how those turned out. So if this is interesting to you, you should go listen to those. What we need to know is that counties, towns, local authorities in multiple states have accused endo of withholding documents in discovery about their role in the opioid crisis and making false statements about it in court. Um, the company got hit with a default judgment last year, which led to a $35 million settlement in Tennessee. And in February, the company was rebuked again. The Tennessee Circuit Court judge, Jonathan Lee Young, ruled against the company in February for its discovery violations and handed out another default judgment. Which, it, it falls along the same lines as what people had said about it before, that it was too secretive, And it was at best deceptive, at worst outright lying uh, to the court. And it's at this point, uh, Amber, as you alluded to, that it gets very screwy. So a few days after he announced his judgment, but it hadn't entered it yet. That's crucial, which will become clear in a second. Judge Young, who is up for reelection in Tennessee, sat down for an interview with Law 360's own Jeff Overly. Jeff scored a big interview with the judge here. And he shared some pretty pointed commentary about the Endo case. He said that what Endo did was, quote, the worst case of document hiding that I've ever seen. It was like a plot out of a John Grisham movie, except it was even worse than what he could dream up.
0: I Um, mean, yeah, that's a pretty juicy quote to get out of a judge.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. It kind of just has been bouncing around in my skull ever since Jeff got that interview.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And that by itself, maybe wouldn't raise too many eyebrows because, like, that doesn't sound like something so different than a judge might say from the bench. But along with that, Young posted on his Facebook page about how he said he basically alluded to the fact that more local news outlets should be covering this decision. And when somebody commented on, in the context of his reelection bid, Someone commented basically saying that he would have trouble getting support from powerful donors because they have ties to the pharmaceutical industry in Tennessee. He liked that comment. Oof. And all of those statements and sort of activities working together really brought us to a new level here.
1: Well, as, you know, someone who used to work in local news, (laughs) sir, I I think we would all love more local coverage, but tell that to (laughs) uh, Gannett and all those companies. (laughs) But that's not the point here. I digress. So this, I take it, is what spurred Endo to then push for for the judge's recusal, or or how did all that go down?
2: That's right. So after this Law 360 interview published and these Facebook posts came out, the company files uh, a motion for the judge to recuse himself. They accused Judge Young of egregious ethical violations and statements that they said were, quote, laced with rhetoric more befitting of a political campaign than a neutral judge. And the sequencing of events is key here. The judge gave this interview to Law360 and made these posts on Facebook after he had announced his intent to enter default judgment, but before he had actually written the order entering it. So this means that the case is technically still active. And in their recusal push, Endo seizes on this. They wrote, quote, For a judge to have an open forum on Facebook to discuss a pending case, potentially, indeed almost certainly observed by potential jurors, is so irregular and unprecedented that Endo was unable to find any case law discussing such a scenario. And sure enough, this week, the Tennessee Court of Appeals sided with the company. They said that Young should have recused himself in the wake of these comments, they ordered a redo of the entire proceeding with a new judge at the lower level. Um, here's the basic gist of what the appeals court said. Speaking about the Facebook posts first, they wrote, quote, this activity by the trial judge positions himself publicly as an interested community advocate and voice for change in the larger societal controversy over opioids, not an impartial adjudicator presiding over litigation. This is almost exactly what Endo wrote in, in the brief that I just read, right? So he also uh, the panel went on to write, this perception is enhanced when considered alongside the trial judge's ready participation in the law360.com article and apparent desire as expressed on his Facebook page for more local media coverage. So there you oh. have it, Jeff Overly, uh, ambitious, just stirring it up. <laughs> you know, Law causing
1: com, yeah. making it yeah. into another order.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The full URL. Here's
1: the thing though. I don't <laughs> want other
0: judges to be scared to talk to us. I hope that's not our big takeaway. But This is a big <laughs> reversal here. Mm-hmm. Pretty important. So what has the aftermath been like? I mean, are judges scared of us now?
2: Uh, I mean, probably, uh, (laughs) though maybe that was true before for various reasons. I don't know. Um, I hope not for a, I I hope there isn't a chilling effect that you just described. But this is a it's a huge story whenever a judge not only gets reversed, um, but then disqualified from the case on basically the appearance of impropriety or the appearance of bias. And Endo quickly welcomed the reversal, saying it, it will promote confidence in the judiciary, which is about what you would expect. The Tennessee counties that are suing Endo kind of downplayed it as like more of an inconvenience, you know, that does nothing to really change the substantive facts about Endo's secrecy in these uh, in these litigation proceedings. Here was a quote from their attorney: Every judge in Tennessee who has looked at Endo's actions and representations during discovery has agreed that a default judgment is an appropriate sanction for their reprehensible conduct we look forward to presenting the default request to the newly assigned judge and ultimately to presenting the damages case to a jury. So, you know, it's, um, it's a startling development to be sure. Um, but I think, you know, sort of instant analysis that it probably f- falls more into the category of an inconvenient setback for the plaintiffs than some kind of sea change in favor of endo. So, um, these cases will move forward and, you know, uh, stay tuned.
1: Man, what a saga. Jeff Overly, ladies and gentlemen, once again.
2: (laughs) Out there keeping them honest.
1: (laughs) So let's turn now to um, perhaps another cautionary tale, but this one uh, with mandatory arbitration provisions in customer agreements.
0: Okay, you guys know I love talking about arbitration, so I'm actually very (laughs) excited about this, Haley.
2: This is a juicy one. We we really got to work on your framing here again, Haley. I mean, ma- I mean, you know, <laughs> mandatory arbitration provisions. You know, longtime listeners will know this is before your time on the show, Haley. This is one of the co- this is one of the early cottage pro se issues. Companies shunting customers and employees to uh, to arbitration. So what's the deal here?
1: So Uber is staring down a ninety one million dollar bill from the American Arbitration Association. And that's stemming from the costs associated with tens of thousands of individual arbitrations from its customers. So the company was hoping to dodge at least some of those fees, you know, get it it knocked down a peg or two. But last week, a New York appellate panel said, nope, you got to pay up. How many arbitrations does it
0: take to rack up a $91 million bill? (laughs) That is just on the face of it. Absolutely wild. So let's talk about this. I mean, was this just like a whole slew of individual arbitrations and that's how we got to this big number?
1: Yes. So, you know, Uber, like many companies, includes these arbitration provisions in those customer agreements that we all scroll furiously through and do not read and then hit I (laughs) agree and then move on. But uh, mass arbitration campaigns like this are really a risk for every company who uses them. In this case, uh, we don't need to get, you know, too into the weeds, but... Basically, all of these, and there are 31,560, to answer your question, Amber. (laughs) Wow. All of these are from Uber Eats customers, and they have beef, pun intended, with (laughs) a temporary 2020 policy waiving certain delivery fees for Black-owned restaurants. And the customers say that that policy was racially discriminatory.
0: Wow, um, that is not exactly what I expected these arbitrations to be over, but the vast number there does show a real like uh, companies maybe should fear this coming yeah. back to bite them when they want arbitration.
2: Well, yeah, I mean we're like we already said. I mean, ninety-one million dollars is nothing to sneeze at, even for a rich company like Uber. I mean, that's like that's yeah. like law three hundred and sixty holiday um, after party bar tab territory. We're
1: getting in. <laughs>
2: um, wow. No, um, <laughs> okay, but like how. Okay, so there's this raft of cases about discriminatory policies. Um, How do those cases lead to this huge bill? I was crunching some numbers here, but uh, why don't you spell it out for us?
1: So the association charges fees for things like case management and arbitrators. And generally, those fees include um, $1,400 for the case management and then $1,500 for the arbitrator. Um, And in this instance... The Arbitration Association also had to figure out how to even go about tackling this avalanche of arbitration demands, and they ultimately decided to split them up into five different batches. So all told, all that work comes out to $91 million in fees, according to uh, the association.
0: I'm fascinated by this, just the issue itself, like these giant fees. But we did end up in court. So tell me how we landed there. It was, uh, what was it, New York?
1: Yes. uh, Yep. In New York State Court. So Uber was essentially hoping to get that bill reduced. And it argued that all of those individual claims were filed by one law firm. And they're all nearly identical. And Uber challenged the bill in a September complaint, contending that that law firm knew filing 31,000 arbitration demands would mean that Uber would have to pay millions of dollars in fees. And the whole ordeal was really an attempt to make a political point. Uber also argued that the American Arbitration Association really didn't have to charge that much. I mean, the cases are essentially the same. So... Do you really need to assess, you know, the individual fees on each individual case? Mm -hmm. That's what Uber was arguing.
2: I can't be the only one struck by the irony of, and I just want to make it really clear, that the point of like using mandatory arbitration clauses and things like that is to not litigate. And then you... (laughs) Sue the actual arbitration association (laughs) when you don't like the bill.
0: And the point of using arbitration from the company perspective is that it's lots cheaper. And this has really bitten them in the behind in this
1: (laughs) instance. (laughs) It really has.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, they were making all these arguments saying they're all parroting each other's claims. Do they have to be like individually assessed and shepherded through the process and all this stuff? But it sounded like the courts weren't really having it.
1: No, they, so in October, a New York state court refused to issue a preliminary injunction and basically said the company was in a nightmare of its own making for choosing to use the arbitration provisions. And last week, the state's appellate court said that was absolutely the right call. Uber will not suffer irreparable harm without an injunction, the panel found. Um, And in fact, Uber could have avoided some of the bill by changing the way the Arbitration Association had proposed to handle the cases. Um, Here's what the panel wrote. While Uber is trying to avoid paying the arbitration fees associated with 31,000 nearly identical cases, it made the business decision to preclude class, collective, or representative claims in its arbitration agreement with its consumers, and AAA's fees are directly attributable to that decision.
0: This is just so full of irony. It's dripping with it because Uber itself was like, hey, why couldn't these all be lumped together more in some way? And it's like, well, Uber, because that's not how your arbitration clause works. Yeah. So what does this mean going forward? I mean, should other companies be quaking over this, uh, this set of rulings?
1: I, you know, I kind of think they should. This issue had not previously gone before an appellate court. So I think there was still some hope out there for companies that use these arbitration provisions. That well, maybe you know, if we are hit with a mass arbitration campaign, maybe we there's a chance that the courts will be sympathetic and we can get some of that, uh, some of those fees knocked off. But this has pretty resoundingly sent the message that uh, nope, courts are not sympathetic, and you're just gonna have to pay. That entire bill. So I imagine, um, you know, in making these decisions about whether or not to include the provisions in consumer agreements moving forward, companies are going to have to weigh the risk of winding up in Uber's shoes.
0: Many workers are trickling back into their offices, and they're going to be heading back to more than just their desks. They're also going to be faced with things like office birthday parties for their coworkers. While that may seem like a lot of fun to some people, for one company, it led to a $450,000 jury verdict, for a worker said the party triggered a panic attack and led to his firing. Today, we're joined by Employment Authority senior reporter Amanda Ottaway, to explain exactly what happened in the case and tell us what lessons employers can take about how to handle mental health issues at work. Welcome to the show, Amanda.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So this one on the face of it seems a little crazy that a birthday party could lead to a giant verdict, but tell us how a party went so wrong.
3: Yeah. So this guy um, in Kentucky, he was a lab tech named Kevin Burling. He worked at a place called Gravity Diagnostics. um, And he has an anxiety disorder that, you know, sometimes leads to panic attacks when he's stressed out or in a stressful situation. And so he knew that the office culture at this place was to throw birthday celebrations for employees when it was their birthday. And so a couple days ahead of time, he asked the office manager like, hey, you know, I have an anxiety disorder. Please, please don't throw me. Party. And for whatever reason, you know, whether that message got lost in translation or what, there was, there was a celebration anyway. When he learned that, he, you know, he, he saw it and uh, that triggered a panic attack for him. And, and he ended up spending his, his lunch break in his car that day using like coping mechanisms that his therapist had taught him. So, so, yeah, that's kind of like the basic facts of the case and And I can get into you know what happened next, which is really what attorneys told me was was problematic about it,
0: yeah, I feel like you're telling me a really compelling story. So I'm like, yeah, Amanda, tell us what's next. <laughs>
3: Definitely go for it. What
0: happened after he just opted out and went to his car,
3: right. So that first part that I just told you is what grabbed all the headlines. It literally grabbed headlines around the world. I saw. Because that's you know it sounds very very exciting, but what happened next was he apparently got called into a meeting with a couple of managers who basically chastised him for for not wanting a birthday party, um, and that triggered another panic attack uh, during that meeting. And you know he he apparently, according to his complaint, he asked them to to stop and. They assumed his lawyer told me that that they assumed that he was dangerous because of what he was experiencing with his panic attack, and he was fired a couple of days later. Um, so basically, his lawyer told me, you know, this this case was not about an unwanted birthday party. If they if they'd apologized and moved on, like this case probably wouldn't have ever have happened. But but you know, instead of apologizing, they they actually confronted him about the fact that he'd asked to not
1: have a party. Goodness, this is. Just terrible, honestly what a nightmare to hear about. I'm curious, though, how common something like this is. I mean, we've all been forced into unwanted um office parties. Is this like a common trigger point for people?
3: Yeah, you know, folks I talked to said that the the specifics of this particular incident did seem unique, um and I think that's why it's it's grabbed so many people's attention. Everybody knows about the office birthday party. You love them, you hate them, you know, whatever. But they also said that once you get past that birthday party part, the facts of the case are actually pretty standard disability discrimination. A pretty, you know, boilerplate example of this, this employee had a disability. He asked for a couple of reasonable accommodations. Um, You know, he asked for no birthday party. He asked for them to, to stop you know, chastising him or whatever was happening in the meeting that was triggering him again and, and didn't get the accommodations in either case. And then he was fired for his disability, you know, the jury found. So as far as the actual case goes, you know, it's 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 not actually that uncommon. Um, and as disabilities go, anxiety is really, really common. So the EEOC keeps data on charges filed um, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, which obviously encompasses a lot of different disabilities Charges citing anxiety disorder have been ticking up steadily pretty much every year for a while. Um, They made up 11.6% of the total in fiscal year 2021, which is, I believe, the biggest percentage of any specific disability that's cited. And it's actually that that is up from, it was 9.5% in 2019 and in 2012. So about 10 years ago, it was 6%. So basically, anxiety charges have doubled in the last decade. And wow. the World Health Organization actually just found this. They, they released a report last month that found that anxiety and depression increased 25% around the globe as a result of the pandemic. So that is just, I mean, yeah. that's an absolutely staggering number.
0: Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense um, that those two conditions would be up in our really rough last couple of years that we've had. So it almost feels like a perfect storm where you've got a lot more anxiety and the potential pool of workers, plus people going back into offices where things might trigger them in certain ways. I- I'd like to kind of turn now to what employers should take away from this situation and and what they can do. I mean, are managers just supposed to cancel parties? Should we not have <laughs> birthday parties anymore? And what about all the social activities that are being planned around return to office? It feels like we're going to have even more parties than ever,
3: potentially. Yeah. Nobody's canceling birthday parties, Amber. Um. Uh, I mean, I personally
0: like a party, so happy to hear it. But I also would like people not to feel stressed out at work. So what are managers going to do here? I mean, I think you sort of alluded to this, that the attorney in this case said it wasn't really the party. It was the aftermath. Is that right?
3: Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, you know, you say you like birthday parties, so when it's your birthday, I'll throw you a birthday party. Like that's this is kind of in in some ways, it really is that simple. Like you just got to listen to people. That's what that's what lawyers told me over and over. Just like listen to your employees and and try to be responsive to their wants and needs. And you know, yeah, as you say, um, like employee engagement. We're we're all trying to figure out what that means right now, and especially because so many people have been working remotely. Um, so it's just a matter of, yeah, being sensitive to the fact that, first of all, um, mental health challenges are super on the rise. People are also mu- much more open about talking about them. I think the pandemic yeah. has been a real catalyst for that, which is which is awesome. Um, but it is still pretty stigmatized. So just kind of treading cautiously and just, just listening is what people kept saying to me.
1: So let's say you you are doing your best, but you have inadvertently set up a potentially really stressful situation for an employee. What should you do if they do start getting upset or acting a little oddly? Yeah.
3: So, you know, obviously I wasn't in the room, you know, when, when Kevin Burling experienced his panic attack, I, you know, I don't know what happened, but the way that his managers saw it was they, you know, they thought he might be dangerous and, he wasn't. And and there was no history of, of violence in the workplace. You know, that was that was incorrect. But attorneys told me that workplace violence is a real, you know, it's a real thing and it's a real concern. And in other situations, like if you don't know what's happening, um, if some, if somebody is acting in a way that you've never seen before or like seems off or you don't understand it, there are ways... To keep everyone safe and also not discriminate against the person, so a couple of people suggested a cooling off period, uh, which is where you know it's what it sounds like—you send somebody home for the day with pay. You know, you're not suspending them. Like there's an expectation that they will come back, and then you try to figure out what happened. You can just talk to them <laughs> and be like, "What's going?" on? You know, it's it's it sounds so simple. Um, just you know, not say what's hard. going on. <laughs> yeah, and you know, one one attorney told me even in the moment, you know, again, I wasn't in the room, but she was like, even in the moment, somebody, you know, a little bit of emotional intelligence. Yeah. Like, say you look distressed, like you seems like something's going on. What's going on with you?
0: This sounds like something where managers may need just more education, too, because I can imagine a scenario where it's nothing nefarious. They're not trying to discriminate, but they maybe just have a mindset of who doesn't want a birthday party why is he reacting so big to what should be fun like maybe it's mm-hmm. a lot of ignorance going into this problem as well
3: yeah definitely there was a lot of emphasis on on DEI training being being really helpful and of course there's no there's no one way that people experience mental health distress either and so just being being open and understanding to kind of the variety of ways that that everyone is going through what they're going through
0: so what are the big takeaways for employers um, to not find themselves in a situation where they think they're doing something nice for employees and it turns into a disaster and a lawsuit? <laughs> what what should they do to protect themselves other than canceling all parties, which, as I've f- firmly established, I do not like as a solution?
3: <laughs> um, yeah, you know. Make sure the doors are open for people to express if they're struggling with something, if they are struggling with anxiety or depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, which, you know, the the pandemic has increased all of those. Make sure that there's an opening for them to talk about it. You got to make sure your workplace culture allows for those openings. Um, At the same time, that is private medical information. So it's not like everybody has to share their... Their mental health problems in a group meeting, but, you know, making sure that people feel safe in sharing that with, with supervisors or HR. Just be aware, be sensitive to differences. I think that, you know, some one attorney gave the example of, like, if you want to throw a Christmas party or put up Christmas decorations, just how would that make employees feel who don't celebrate Christmas? Um, is throwing a baby shower for somebody who's expecting, is that going to make people feel left out if they don't have kids or if they can't have kids or if they're going through you know, a miscarriage or something like that? You know, just try, everybody's coming to work in all kinds of different situations and just trying to just generally be sensitive to that.
0: Yeah, it seems like a lot to navigate, but I hope something that employers are really taking to heart right now since there is such a rise in depression and anxiety Seems like we've got to really look out for workers in a way that maybe wasn't as ubiquitous before.
3: Yeah, definitely.
0: Thanks, Amanda, for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Like our show is something offbeat, and I have something to ask you guys. I promise it is not a trick question. Do you think <laughs> I'm qualified to be the attorney general of DC? <laughs>
2: um well, <laughs> well. Well, is there something you want to tell us? Uh, I mean, are you I
0: mean, yeah, are you running? <laughs> well, we'll find out by the end of the segment. I just wanted your hot take on whether or not you think I'm qualified for the job. I would like to remind you,
2: I
1: do Love have how a we're dancing around this. <laughs>
2: I mean, you're my friend, so, you know, I mean, I'm not, I am unbiased. Sure, you're qualified. You are a uh, fair and uh, you are, you are tough, but fair. Uh, you have a law degree, your,
1: right? That, I do. That's true. I, do.
2: Yeah. I
0: liked tough, but fair. That's great. That's going to be my new campaign slogan.
2: Yeah, sure. So
0: here's why I bring it up. Let me make this all make sense. On Monday, one of the candidates running for D.C. AG was disqualified because one of his opponents went to the D.C. Board of Elections and said he doesn't meet the experience requirements that are required for holding that position. And the mm. board uh, agreed with that. And so he's now out of the race. The DQ'd candidate is called Kenyon McDuffie. It's a Democratic D.C. council member. The challenger who set in motion this disqualification was uh, is a former Perkins Coie partner named Bruce Spiva. And he told the Board of Elections that McDuffie hasn't been actively engaged as an attorney, judge, or law professor in D.C. for at least five of the last 10 years. And that Hmm. basically means that under the rules, he can't run for attorney general.
2: This brings up kind of one of my favorite. I I have lots of friends who have graduated law school, and it's always kind of fuzzy about like when and where you start being a lawyer or somebody with a law degree. Absolutely. Now, that's not the case here, because the guy like has worked as a lawyer, which will like pretty in pretty... it's just a matter of like the amount of time he spends doing it now. What yeah. is the rule? What does the so, rule actually say?
0: It's a 2010 law that DC attorney general candidates have to be experienced attorneys who basically match the experience requirements to sit on the bench of DC courts. It used to be that candidates for AG just had to be in good standing members of the bar for seven years or more. Pretty low bar there. I could have met yeah. that many years. Um, cool. But congrats. <laughs> well, here's where I fall apart, and why I am you're, not a great candidate. Right. Um, so, the, under this 2010 rule, they expanded to reflect that both expertise and experience is really important to being a successful attorney general. So, you Which have to
1: have practice. Makes- sense yeah yeah (laughs) it it
0: pretty much does and it's i just do want to point out there's other states that have rules like this too this isn't like unusual to dc you just don't usually see it being wielded from one candidate to another um and getting somebody dq'd out of the race
2: yeah i mean without even like coming remotely close to weighing in on the politics or the or even the you know parties here this is i mean this is kind of rat behavior if i'm being honest just going and saying hmm not quite qualified uh, on this uh, law that's very important to us, um, but... I hear
0: what you're saying, but there's an the argument guy, to be... Well, but there's yeah. an argument to be made that, like, don't you want your attorney general to be a real rule follower and pretty persnickety? Maybe I guess that's that's plus.
2: That's true. Let's get to the... I mean, that's the you you've described the letter of the law. I mean, we could probably talk about the spirit now. Like, what is this guy what is this guy, like, manifestly unqualified? like what what is the CV looking like, exactly?
0: Yeah. I do want to be McDuffie, clear about yeah. that because McDuffie has a pretty impressive background. I don't want this segment to make it sound like this is some joke candidate. It's absolutely not that, yeah, yeah. mcDuffie um served as an assistant state's attorney in Prince George's County in Maryland. That's right outside of d c. Later was a trial attorney for the DOJ's Civil Rights Division, um, worked as a legislative and policy advisor for the DC Office of the Deputy Mayor for Public Safety and Justice, and has represented Ward 5 on the DC Council since May of 2012. So that is by any measure an impressive resume. But as you can hear in some of those titles near the end, a lot of policy style work and legislative Mm -hmm. style work, which is not going to qualify you under this rule in D.C. about what you have to have in your recent past to be able to run for attorney general.
2: Yeah. I mean, mm. this this raises questions about, you know, is lawyering, like, I mean, if you haven't done lawyering in a while, I mean, is it like riding a bike? I mean, is he like, hey, guys, I didn't forget how to take a deposition. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Like, I mean, you know, you, 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 you throw me in there, I will file a motion in limine um, with the best of them. Like, you know, it doesn't even. (laughs) I mean,
0: like, Alex, you're not that far off from how McDuffie reacted to this.
2: Um, (laughs) Yeah, okay. He was
0: pretty mad about the whole thing and called the Board of Elections decision, this is a quote, an attack on our democracy and on working people in DC. He said, he pointed out that this challenge, in fact, came from a corporate lawyer somebody who he uh, did a little dig and pointed out that his campaign is funded with millions of dollars from Facebook and Amazon. And he's sort of positioning himself as more a man of the people. And so he said this is an attack. Basically, the big corporate guy is coming after me, the little guy who's done a bunch of policy work.
2: Uh, this interesting. is interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't know what this says about the future of your candidacy. Uh, Amber. Well, look, uh, I
0: mean, I will say this. Now we're down to only three Democratic candidates for the June primary. McDuffie has said he will appeal, so we'll see if it goes back up to four. But as of right now, it's down to three, leaves me an opening, you know.
1: That it does. I think
0: I would say I would face the same fate only with a worse CV than McDuffie, (laughs) so uh, probably not a winning proposition for me. But I'll let you know, and I'll think
2: over that campaign slogan. I mean, you got to force their hand. Like we've we've pretty clearly established that under this rule, you're not qualified. But hey. Throw your hat in there, throw some, sling some mud, and make them make them boot you off the ticket. That's what I change the
1: state law, Amber. Get
0: (laughs) in there. I could at least uh, generate some stories we could write about here at Law 360. So win-win for everybody.
2: Yeah, that's the spirit.
0: (laughs) All right, I gotta go um, confer with my husband. He's gonna be my campaign manager. Got gotta get off the call now. We have a lot of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest this week, Amanda Ottaway, and our contributing reporters, Jeff Overly, Umberto Rocha, and Lauren Berg. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left us a five-star and written review wherever you're listening. That really does help other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we talked about, just check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you next week.